Welcome to another episode of Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. Today, we're speaking with Roxanne Gay. Roxanne is a multi-hyphenate writer, creative, and editor, authoring essays, short stories, novels, and even a memoir. And of course, you may know her by her powerful Twitter presence and hugely impactful public speaking. She has also done work for Marvel Comics as the main writer for Black Panther World of Wakanda, a six-issue comic series, and recently did a one-page She-Hulk story for Marvel's Voices Number 1, a comic book inspired by this podcast. Over the course of her career, Roxane Gay has been, for many, an overwhelmingly influential force in pop culture as a strong voice for women and people of color, both inside and outside of genre spaces. I was excited to hear about her literary origins and her Marvel journey. When was, for you, your first exposure to Marvel? Like, were you already a Marvel person? Like, No, I was not a Marvel person. In Beyond, I certainly watched the Marvel movies, and I was familiar with the Marvel world, but I had not read extensively in the Marvel comics. I, I was more of an Archie comics person, <laughs> and I read those religiously growing up, like, religiously. It's the soap opera. It was, um, you know, the little dramas and relationships— and I just thought, oh, my God, like, they're so high school and they're so cool. And I just want to be that cool. <laughs> and I was never going to be that cool. I was never, ever going to be that cool. And yet it, there was quite an allure to the coolness or at least the perceived coolness yeah. of um, those kids. And so I was just very, very into it. I love it because I also think that tracks with what is like well known as another love of yours, which is Sweet Valley High and Nancy Drew. Yeah. Like I feel like there's there's a trend here mm-hmm. of of this kind of like real Americana varsity jacket, high school ice cream shop type feel. Mm-hmm. What was it for you that made you like really love this kind of cause so many folks who were in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s didn't really grow up with that kind of atmosphere. It's very reminiscent of the 50s, 60s, 70s-ish almost. It is. You know, I think partly I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. And so there was already this, I don't want to say, yeah, I think there was already this predilection for the comforts of suburbia and this idea that, these sort of idyllic communities still existed, even though hmm. beyond the surface, nothing was idyllic. And I think because I, there, I was living with like this, I, this juxtaposition of the way things seemed and the way things actually were, I was very drawn to stories that were set in these idyllic places because I really wanted it and I really needed it. Mm-hmm. And... So it just allowed me the fantasy, and the fantasy was extremely satisfying. Yeah. Did you ever get into fantasy or sci-fi as well? Oh, for sure. I loved, and I still love, fantasy and sci-fi. I read a lot of sci-fi growing up. I read a lot of Heinlein, um, even though he's super problematic. But, you know, I just didn't know at the time. And there was this um, series of books called um, Daughter of the Empire, Mistress of the Empire, Servant of the Empire by um, Jenny Wirtz. And um, she had a male co-writer. 
And I loved those stories. It was, I love fantasy that's such intense world building and where there's a lot of political intrigue and hierarchy mm. and, you know, anything that will transport me from reality is A plus and fine by me. So, um, yeah, I read a lot of sci-fi and um, fantasy. I love it because it's there's this like idea of being able to be transported and and I see a lot of that in your writing, even in your hyper-realistic writing. I remember reading Untamed State for the first time, which was your debut novel that came out in 2014. Mm -hmm. And while the story is emotionally challenging because it's about a Haitian-American woman, Muriel, getting kidnapped in Haiti, its structure actually parallels a fable or a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. It even starts with Once Upon a Time. So how do you approach your writing when you're doing even hyper-realistic writing? You know, I think, especially in my earlier writing, I think I'm, I've definitely evolved from where I was. But early on in my writing, um, my fiction writing, I was very invested in the idea of fairy tales and this the overall structure and looking not only at fairy tales um, in the contemporary sense where everything is, you know, Disneyfied and beautiful, but fairy tales in the original sort of Grimm's sense, um, because Grimm's fairy tales were, in fact, very grim. And I was interested in that sort of balance of light and dark. I'm a Libra, and so balance is definitely something that is an influence in a lot of my work. And so when I was writing An Untamed State, I was really interested in the structure of fairy tales. And the original short story that it's based on was called Things I Know About Fairy Tales. And I juxtaposed the reflections that Mireille was having about her experience with these little encapsulations of fairy tales. And it just is, is it's interesting to me. And in Difficult Women, I think most of those short stories are in one way or another a fairy tale. It just offers a really classic narrative structure. And it speaks to a lot of the things that I enjoy as a writer, um, which is like a love story of some kind and some intense complication. And instead of making the men complicated, because I don't, who gives a fuck? I really like to make the women complicated. And more than just the damsel in distress. And so I do try to put my own twist on it to varying degrees of success. <laughs> For you, what do you think makes a good story a fable? Like how much how much morality goes into this? Like how much of what we've we've learned of the fable structure? Mm -hmm gets infused? You know, I would say not much. Um, you know, morality is relative and I don't know that I'm, I'm only concerned with morality insofar as it involves bringing justice to women who more often than not are the victims of uh, what our culture as a whole determines is moral or immoral. And men get to be the standard bearers and they get to bend the rules of morality to suit their own ends while women have to bend themselves and have no control. And so that's the only way in which I'm really interested in morality. More I'm interested in going beyond the sort of black and white and really looking at the gray. And that's where I think the most narrative potential lies and where the most interesting storytelling lies. 
Roxanne was invited into writing comics by another writer, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Just like Roxanne, Ta-Nehisi has also written some pretty well-known essays, in addition to a novel and a memoir, most notably his book, Between the World and Me. Tanahasi started writing comics for Marvel in 2016 and has written both Black Panther and Captain America. Leading up to Marvel Studios' Black Panther, Marvel was looking at how they could expand on the life and characters in Black Panther's homeland, Wakanda. So Tanahasi suggested Roxanne. In the series Black Panther World of Wakanda, she delved into the world and lives of an elite group of women warriors who protect the Wakandan throne. You know them, you love them, the Dora Milaje. One of the things about your writing for World of Wakanda is that there is nothing but strong women. Mm-hmm. Like, there is complication, there's strong women. So many women have not seen that mm-hmm. in a comic book before you did it. Yeah. Um, and so you were suggested to 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 work on this mm-hmm. uh, by Tanahasi. Mm-hmm. How did how did this go down? Like, what is what is this story about? <laughs> did we just call up Tanahasi? He's like, "Yo, Roxanne, what's going on? You just chilling? Basically, you want to read? A, you want to write a comic book?" He sent me an email in the middle of the night, and I happened to be awake. I think he was living in Paris at the time, and he said, "Hey, do you want to write a comic?" Have you ever thought about it? And I wrote back, yeah, I mean, not really, but I'm down for whatever. And he said, oh, okay, great, because I'm writing for Marvel and I would love to bring you in. And I was like, oh, that's cute that he's writing for a little company that has the audacity to, like, call itself the same name as Captain America's Marvel. And I was like, sure, whatever. And then a few weeks later, I heard from him and he was like, okay, great, here's my editor, Will, and... I just want to hook you guys up, and I think this is going to work out really well. They're really excited to bring you on board. And I was like, oh, sure, cool. Um, And then he was like, here's Will's email address, and it was like marvel.com or something. And I was like, huh, so this little upstart owns marvel.com. I wonder, like, how much money Marvel has tried to throw at this problem to, like, get their domain back. Because, like, that's up. And, I mean, I'm kind of glad that this little company is raging against a machine And so I thought, let me just type marvel.com in and see, like, what their comics are about. And I typed it in, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. And that's when I realized that he meant, like, Marvel Marvel, um, (laughs) which blew my mind. And uh, then it was really exciting. And so um, I had no idea what I was doing. I was uh, navigating the planet without a map. But Ta-Nehisi sent me outlines of his run of Black Panther at the time so that I could get a sense of where the Dora Milaje were at and what was going on with uh, T'Challa. And then I got to read some back issues to see where the Dora Milaje had been in the Marvel Universe before that. And I just knew one thing. I was going to write two Black lesbians who were in love with each other and who did not die and who were not involved in any sort of unrequited feelings for heterosexual or white women. And, and there's, I mean, you know, and I, and I say that knowing that I'm in an interracial relationship, but I think that in storytelling all too often, the way that we make blackness palatable is by putting characters into interracial relationships. And so I wanted two black women, black, black women to love each other and, you know, have issues along the way, but like suffering was not going to be part of their narrative. 
emotional suffering. And so I was really pleased with that. And I was really glad that Marvel let me stick to that because originally Ta-Nehisi had said, you know, I was going to, I was going to kill off. I can't remember if it was Io or Anika. He was like, I was going to have one of them die. And I was just like, Mm-mm, no, sir, that is not a good idea. And that's why he actually reached out to some, to other people because he realized that perhaps there were other people who might be better equipped to tell these women's stories and I'm, I, I remain incredibly grateful. He did not have to open that door to me, and he did. And um, it was wonderful. Do you feel like there was an aspect of your writing that you had done at any point before that that influenced how you approached writing the characters for the Dora Milaje for the world of Wakanda? You know, I think my fiction writing and I think the work I did in Untamed State and Difficult Women really just influenced it. And, and and oddly enough, some of my pop culture criticism, because I definitely knew what I didn't want to do. That really helped me to determine what I did want to do. Um, you know, one of the great things about watching a lot of bad television and film is that you start to see what some of the pitfalls are. And I certainly encountered pitfalls of my own, but I knew the kinds of things I certainly did not want to do. And I tried as best I could to... Um, avoid making those kinds of mistakes. I mean, it's one of the things that you kind of talk about when you are developing things. And I've had an, a, a conversation with a number of writers who's like, yeah, I watched so much and I consumed so much that I learned that's not it or that's it. You read a lot of fiction mm-hmm. um, with realistic female protagonists and you did it as you did it from a very young age. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my brain, I just see, I, I wish they would just give you Sweet Valley High and let you rewrite it. Oh, like that's, that's Listen, I pray for that job all the time. I would just do it so well. Like, I would do it so well. I'm just being real. And the twins would be Black. Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield. They would now be Black women. I, I now want this, and I'm, I'm going to turn back to comics. Mm-hmm. If I don't, we're going to go down a deep, dark hole of this. <laughs> but do you feel like also the work that you did in memoirs and the, the, the stuff that you read, do you feel like any of that influenced your work into the sci-fi world? Like that realistic um, work? Yeah, you know, I'm the thing about sci-fi is that people think it's like, Sci-fi is its own genre, and it requires a very specific skill set. But at the same time, it's still about people or beings, depending on the kind of sci-fi you're telling. And so you still need to focus on the more humane and human aspects of storytelling. If, if you have this couple on a spaceship, they're still going to have issues despite the fact that they're on an awesome spaceship. And so I definitely try to remember that. And when I think about the kinds of stuff that I put into my memoir writing and that I put into my other nonfiction, I do try to bring that forward. And so with the Dora Milaje, like there's a lot going on in the Black Panther universe and there's this really existential threat that's creeping at the edges of their known world. But they're also two women in a new relationship who just want to get away. And so they go for a romantic weekend in New York, walking down the street. And of course, there are some bros who sexually harass them and they handle it. And we are reminded that they're amazing and lethal assassins. And then they're immediately, you know, they're having this romantic time. They go on their little dinner date and then they're called back. 
And so, you know, I try to find ways of balancing the the real and the emotional with the exciting sci-fi based storytelling. I love that. Do you feel like there is a certain type of story or narrative structure that is better in the comics form? Or do you think this is a, a universal thing that can happen? You know, I think that there are a lot of theories about what works and what doesn't work in any genre. And I ignore those theories because, um, I mean, it's not that I ignore those theories. That that sounds too arrogant. I, I, I try to familiarize myself with the rules of any given genre, but I also believe, and the reason I was willing to take on writing comics at all, I, I believe that storytelling is storytelling. And the rules of storytelling are generally going to apply no matter what. And what makes a good story is going to be the similar in one genre, from one genre to the next. You want to have, you know, always leave the reader wanting more. You want to have cliffhangers. You want to have well-developed characters. You want to have a compelling plot. And so that's not something that's genre-specific. And quite frankly, there are a lot of (laughs) genres that could benefit from remembering that. So one of the things I love, love, love beyond the good story and beyond the the amazing dynamics that break past all of the tropes is that you worked with the extremely talented Aletha E. Martinez, who's worked on Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur, Iron Man, X-Men, and Miles Morales Spider-Man. What was your experience working with her? We actually didn't have a lot of interaction. Um, My editor, Will, was really our go-between, but... I was asked, you know, like, what do I want to see in my characters? And, you know, one thing I was, I don't want them to all be skinny minis and they can't have like ridiculously large boobs and still, you know, be hanging out of a bikini when they're saving the world. Like we, they have to have muscular, athletic, interesting bodies and you could, let's put some thicker women in. Like, I understand why you may not have you know, a fat woman involved, but I do think that we had to have more different kinds of bodies. And so that was the one thing I asked. And to some degree, they acquiesced. And to some degree, they didn't. But that's just the world we live in, unfortunately. And hopefully, further down the line, the more experience I get in the comics world, um, the more I'll be able to really advocate for the kinds of things that I would like to see visually. But um, it was just really great to see her pages after I would send in these scripts and just see how it came to being. That's the most exciting part of the comics process to me. And I think one of like the striking visual elements of it is that there was this nonverbal communication between the characters, like the way they looked or the way they gaze at each other. What was it like writing this couple, Io and Anika? Because you go from saying, I'm going to have these two lesbians, they are going to be in a romantic Mm -hmm. relationship, How did you start constructing and interweaving that into everything else, though? Well, I I knew what their names were. And other than that, I was given carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. And so I just thought, hmm, okay. I think that a lot of interesting love stories start with antagonism. And so I wanted one to be this really experienced Dora Milaje and the other to be really talented, but without the experience and be this young upstart so that there would be two tensions there. One, that they don't like each other, but there might be something beneath that. And two, the conflict of, I shouldn't get involved with you because I'm your teacher. And so I started with that. And then 
I was interested in, okay, who are these women as individuals? And, you know, one of them is, they're both deeply passionate about Wakanda and protecting the royal family and more importantly, protecting their country. But they're also invested in protecting women and making sure that women are advocated for. And when T'Challa is busy dealing with the rest of the universe and there are things going awry in Wakanda, they take it upon themselves to handle those problems. And I was just, I love the idea of vigilantes who are not blinded by vigilantism, but really are more concerned with justice. And then, you know, I just tried to put in a little personal quirks and this, that, and the other, little sprinkles of personality and just draw the women out like that. You wrote an incredible story for Marvel's Voices number 1. I, I looked at it for the first time and I was like, Oh man, okay, a She-Hulk story. And then I read it and I was like, oh, a She-Hulk story. Um yes. in a page. And and it was it the mm-hmm. thing about the story for me is that it wasn't that it was just a She-Hulk story, is that you told that story in a page. People have done less with more. So how did you get involved with Marvel's Voices number one? Um, my editor emailed me. And, or one of my editors, I have two editors at Marvel, emailed me and asked if I wanted to do it. And I was like, oh, one page? Hells yeah. And it was a lot of fun because I got to pick any character and tell any story. And I would love to get my hands on She-Hulk in terms of like the series. And so I was really, really psyched. And I thought, well, let me show them that I've got some range. And... So I just picked a story and I thought about, you know, she's a lawyer and, you know, lawyers are oftentimes frustrated by the constraints of the justice system. And so let me help her help someone else get an alternative form of justice. And it's so funny because so many men got so upset by the comic. Like I got so much hate mail from that comic, from that like one page. I was like, oh my God, first of all, you read it? And then because they were like, oh, are you advocating the death of police? And I was just like, Uh. what? These are people who will watch Batman and watch the Joker murder cops all over the place. But then when a woman it's not even that the cop dies in the comic strip. I'm like, first of all, that's a leap. The cop is just stopped from taking this rapist to prison because she is going to allow this woman to f*** up her rapist. That's it. Like, please, it's one page. Don't read too much into it. It has nothing to do with the cops at all, beyond the fact that they can't do anything in terms of sexual violence. So um, anyway, yeah, that was fun. I loved it. I would love to do more in the She-Hulk universe. Uh, It was great. What got you into really loving um, She-Hulk. I love women's rage and when women's rage is allowed to flourish because the rage that we talk about in pop culture in storytelling is male rage, the Hulk, the Punisher. It's all about male rage and male dissatisfaction. So let's look at female rage and what that might look like and how it manifests. And I do think it manifests differently. And I'm just very interested in that. I just think it's a cool idea that there's a woman Hulk. So we talked about how detailed World of Wakanda was. This is a one page. Like, how detailed was this script? Oh, it was it was one page. <laughs> the script was real cute. I was like, panel one, panel two, panel three. I think there were five or six panels on the page. Maybe seven. 
And it was hard. It was actually, I enjoyed it as a creative exercise. Like, how do you tell a complete and interesting story in one page? It was hard and stressful, but also I had a lot of fun, I must say, because it was only one page. And then I sent it off and that was it. All right. So let's shift a little bit to you. Like many of us right now, we are working online, but you do teach um, Mm -hmm. and you have students and you, you go, you have classes, but like, most of the time you are a freelance writer, you are mm-hmm. an author, you've got a podcast. That's mostly a home gig. Is this something that you were just like, this is this is what I want. I'm going to freelance. This is how I want to base this structure out. Or is it kind of something you fell into? Well, you know, I've always believed in having multiple streams of income because the writing life is challenging and it's really hard to make money as a writer. And so, you know, I think a lot of, People think to be a writer, all you do is write and you suffer, 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 and then you like become a millionaire. But more realistically, you can be a writer and also have a full-time job. And so until this year, I had a full-time day job. And um, I'm actually taking the year off from teaching and I don't know what I'm going to do next year. Well, I was planning on continuing to write full-time, but you know, I just always wanted to have flexibility. And so I did freelance writing and I do public speaking and editing and my podcast. And somehow all that together, I'm able to make a a good living and pay my mortgage and things like that. And so I just always believe in diversifying my income. And this is exactly why, because now I've lost my main source of income, which is public speaking. So I realistically don't think I'm going to get back to work until 2021. And that's terrifying because like that's 60, 70% of my income just gone. And so I'm glad that I have freelance writing and that I've kept some of those relationships going over the years because now I, I still have at least enough money coming in to buy groceries and, you know, keep my phone bill on. So I'm really glad for that. So one of the cool things is that what I've seen, you have also been kind of helping folks out through the direct action online. Roxanne Gay's $100 direct donations to people in need via Twitter. Tell me about that. Like, why this medium? And, you know, why this form of action? Because it's, It's amazing. The reality is, I mean, I was just looking around and I know that if I am feeling nervous about money, how are people who are making a lot less than me feeling? Because my partner and I went grocery shopping and we were able to stock up. And I just thought not everyone is going to be able to do this. And so I should be able to pay it forward in some way. And so I just decided, you know, I also do give to food banks and other nonprofits, but there's so much paperwork and bureaucracy and you have to prove poverty in, in, in ways that I think are deeply dehumanizing and, and, and petty to give people assistance. And so it's not much, but I think that direct donations are a great way to go. And of course, it's a drop. It's less than a drop in the bucket, but it's a start to give people things that they actually need. People don't need more paperwork. What they need is money to go to the grocery store or put some money on their cell phone bill or whatever. I don't care what people do with the money. You know what? That's not my business. And I think more people need to understand that. Like when you put money into the universe in terms of giving, you don't get to dictate 
And that's the other problem with nonprofits. Sometimes they dictate what the money is supposed to be used for. And like, you have to prove what you use the money for. I'm not here. I'm not, I don't have that kind of time or interest. Uh, And I am also not policing to see if people are genuine or not. Like now I do start to like, I go look at their Twitter feeds and if they're just doing cash app promotions all day, I know that it's not real, but if they are just normal tweeters and you look back a couple days and they're just normally tweeting, I'm like, yeah, that's good enough. Um, I'm also not going to CSI this. I have a question I love asking all writers. Do you write mm-hmm. to a soundtrack or do you write in silence? I don't write in silence. I generally have the television on or I write to music and it's nothing specific. Like I'll listen to anything. Luther Vandross. Sometimes I'll listen to instrumentals. But more often than not, I listen to music, music, R&B, hip hop, or TV. But I would say eight times out of 10, I'm listening to the television. Does it change based on what you're writing or is it just white noise? Uh, No, it's just white noise. It's generally always uh, Law & Order SVU. All right. So this is perfect for a Jen Walters comic. I see all of this happening. Great. What are you reading these days? So I actually just finished... Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby, which is a a collection of essays. And it was wonderful, charming, funny. And I'm reading a lot of fiction because I'm the chair of the National Book Awards Fiction Prize this year. So I'm reading all of the novels published this year. And there are a lot of books published. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? Well, you know, actually, I, I have long thought publishing publishes too many books. Well, it's not every book that was published. It's every book that was uh, nominated by the publisher. Publishers choose whichever books because there's a fee and then they, you know, they submit them to the to the National Book Foundation and we take it from there. It's interesting to see the range of books being published and to see the kinds of things that writers are concerned with in 2020. On the whole, I really enjoy it because I love fiction and I love reading. It's just overwhelming. And I did last year I did the um Pulitzer in nonfiction and that was also a shit ton of reading. And I just now realize just how many books are published and what a miracle it is when any book makes it because there are just so many books being published. This was amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Roxanne. You're more than welcome, Angelique. I'm happy to do this. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Roche, Persia Berlin, Jorge Estrada, and M.R. Daniel. Our director of audio is Jill DeBoff. Our development manager is Brad Barton. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua Williams & Co.